Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Well, for those of you who don't, don't know, uh, I happen to be married to a very talented woman. And one of Mona's many talents is interior design. And she has um, completed years of research on interior design. We have hundreds of French country magazines that we've always had. And she's been uh, doing her research faithfully. Well, when we moved to Little Rock five years ago, she had an opportunity to put that research into uh, some usefulness. And we had the, uh, the great, exciting privilege of actually building Mona's home. And, uh, and I get to live there too. Um, <laughs> so that's really quite a process. Some of you may have been through that. Uh, it starts, of course, with the dreaming phase, the planning phase, and then you have to find a builder who will share your dream and your plans, and then it moves from that to the design phase where you actually put a floor plan together and the blueprints and what the exterior is going to look like, what the interior is going to include. And then you move to a very important phase. That's the funding phase, the financial phase. That was kind of my role. And then after you uh, make arrangements with your loan company or your bank with that, then you can move to the construction phase. And in the middle of the construction phase, there's all kinds of tweaking of the plan or maybe even new ideas. I think some of Mona's best ideas uh, working with our builder came during this phase where we tweaked some things and changed some things. And eventually it moves to the inspection phase where the builder uh, goes through a punch list with the, the potential owners, us, and the other craftsmen and make sure everything is built exactly like it's supposed to be. And then from that, you move to the most exciting phase, and that is the move-in phase. Move-in day is a very exciting day for new homeowners, especially those like us who were able to design our own home and have it built like we, we wanted. A very exciting day indeed. Many of you have gone through the same process and know what that means and feels like. I know we as a church family, a little over a decade ago, actually moved into this house of worship. And we went through the same process, only corporately, and that was indeed a very special day for the church family. Well, today we are in Exodus chapter 40. That's the very last chapter of Exodus. And at the end of this chapter, we're going to experience move-in day for God. When God moved into his house, the tabernacle. What an exciting, amazing day that had to have been. Well, at the beginning of Exodus 40, 
we have the Levites are setting up the tabernacle. Now remember, we ended last week, we talked about in our sermon time, the inspection of the project. Remember, all of the craftsmen, all of the artisans brought the furnishings and the furniture for the tabernacle to Moses for inspection. So they were at that inspection phase. And they passed with flying colors. Everything had been done exactly as the Lord had commanded. And so when they finished with the inspection phase, Moses blessed the people, and then it was time to actually set up the tabernacle. Everything was uh, kind of in its parts before this. But in the beginning of Exodus 40, they set everything up. They set up the courtyard with its linen fence, that 50-yard-long, 25-yard-wide courtyard. They set up the entrance to the courtyard with that brightly colored entrance uh, fabric. They set up the outside features. The bronze altar was set up in the courtyard where they would make uh, or have all of the sacrificial offerings. They had a wash basin that was set up next to that where the priest would wash their hands and their feet before they made a sacrificial offering or before they entered into the tabernacle itself. And then they set up the house, the tent, and it was amazing. Had the three coverings for the top of the tent, the covering of goat skin, the covering of ram's skin dyed red, the other leather covering, probably calf skin on top, had the gold walls that were reflecting gold inside the tabernacle. Then they moved the furniture in. You might remember there were two rooms to the tabernacle. The first room was the largest room, and it was called the holy place. And in that room, they had three pieces of furniture. On the left side, or the south wall, they had the golden lampstand, the only light source in the tabernacle. Then on the opposite wall, the north wall, they had the table of showbread where the priest would break fresh, bake fresh bread every week. Uh, one loaf for each tribe, 12 loaves of bread on a golden table with all kinds of golden utensils. And then right in the front of the entryway, you would have the altar uh, of incense, burning this fragrant incense offering up to the Lord. Behind that was the curtain, the shielding curtain as it's described, probably about four to five inches thick, a very thick curtain that separated the holy place from the holiest of places, the holy of holies or the most holy place. And in that back room, the most westward room, there was only one piece of furniture and it was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was spectacular, a little four foot long Two and a half foot wide chest, probably about four foot tall. And on top of the ark was a pure gold uh, plate, a lid for the ark of the chest, the covenant. And then it had these two beautiful gold cherubim that were part of that, overlooking the mercy seat, that atonement. And that's where the high priest would make an offering one time a year. In the chest itself, they put something very, very valuable, and that was the Ten Commandments. So all of this was now done. The tabernacle not only was built with all the furnishings 
And all of the furniture, not only were they built and ready, but they were now put in place. And so now at the end of Exodus chapter 40, we have God's move-in day. Let's look at uh, verse 34 and see how it reads. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What amazing scene that had to have been. Now remember, it starts by talking about this cloud. All the way through the Exodus, God's people, the Israelites, have experienced the presence of God through this cloud by day that turned into a pillar of fire at night. It was always with them, and it was leading them up above them. And that's where God's presence was. And what we see now is that the cloud who has been, uh, the cloud has been on top of Mount Sinai for all of this time that they have been at the mountain. And now that cloud moves from Mount Sinai and then comes over and actually fills, comes down upon the tabernacle itself, this tent that they had built for God, the house of God. We don't really know exactly what that might have looked like, um, where we don't have any eyewitnesses, because we're going to see that Moses, it says, could not enter that tent. Nobody could enter that tent of meeting. Even Moses, the great man of God, great spiritual giant, hero of the faith, Moses that really got to talk to God face to face. Moses, who even received a glimpse of God's glory up on the mountain. Moses, who spoke with God, communed with God. The one that God gave his blueprint to for his house. This Moses was not even allowed to be in the tent. What did it look like when God's glory filled the tabernacle? Well, we don't know. No one knows, but we think we can get a pretty good picture. I think we have a, an image of this. If we can put that up, it might have looked something like this. Why do we say that? Because earlier in Exodus, God's glory and God's presence is described as a consuming fire. And so the holy place or the holy of holies, the holy place would have been God's home, but the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, would have been like God's bedroom. And this is where we believe the glory of God filled the tabernacle with something like this. It had to be absolutely spectacular. At night, it might have looked more like this. I think we have another picture of the pillar of fire. You see this. And all of the people are camped all the way around the tabernacle, been right in the middle of their camp had to be spectacular and full of splendor. You know, one of the things we note about this is when you encounter the glory of God, human beings cannot experience it directly. It's too overwhelming. It's too dangerous. A human being, even Moses, could not experience the holiness of God directly and live. 
You might remember we have the story earlier in Exodus, Exodus chapter 33, where Moses does get a glimpse of God's glory. I want us just to revisit that for a moment because I think it has a bearing on what we're going to continue to talk about. But in Exodus 33, you might remember after the horrible golden calf incident, Moses goes back on top of Mount Sinai and he and God kind of work things out for the Israelites and God reaffirms his promise to be with Moses. And Moses asks God a bold question at the end of Exodus 33. He says, God, will you show me your glory? Show me your glory. And the Lord responds basically by saying yes. And he says, this is how he describes his glory. This is God. He says, I will, uh, he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And so when we're talking about God's glory, we're talking about experiencing his goodness. And he is all good. Praise God. And then we also see, he says, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. He is not just a God. He is the one true God, the Lord of all, above all, King of kings and Lord of lords is his name. And then he says, in your presence, I will show mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so we see God's qualities of being merciful and compassionate and forgiving. All of this is associated with this idea of glory. And then it says in verse 35, it says, And in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Part of what it means for God to be Lord means he is the boss of our lives. He was leading the people and guiding the people to accomplish his will. Ultimately, he was going to be leading them to uh, the Holy Land, their new home, the Promised Land. And the tabernacle was going to go with them. And so it was a portable home that God had his people build for him. Well, I want us to just focus a little bit more this morning on this idea of glory. What a beautiful concept it is. We need to first of all realize that as God goes, wherever God goes, so goes his glory. Why is that? It's because it's part of who he is. When you and I see or experience or encounter God in any way, we will also see and experience and encounter his glory. What a beautiful privilege that is. And so wherever God goes, his glory will also go. You know, I love the fact here in this story, too, that we're seeing that the reason God moved into the neighborhood of the Israelites 
is really a little different than why Mona and I moved into our neighborhood. We moved into our neighborhood because we liked we liked the neighborhood, we liked, liked the look, and we had our new home there. God moved into his neighborhood because of his neighbors. He wanted to dwell right in the middle of the Israelites, not just above them in the cloud or in the pillar of fire. He wanted to dwell right in their midst, up front, close, and personal. And this whole story is about the presence of God with his people. What an incredible privilege that was and is to have God dwelling right in your midst, right among you. Think about that for just a moment. The ramifications of that are enormous. God was there. He was continuing to be their glorious provider. He was continuing to be their glorious protector. He was the one that they were to worship, the only one that they were to worship, the only one worthy of worship. And uh, so we have all of that built around this, this story, the presence of God with his people. You know, I love the story of the tabernacle. I want us to look at a definition of this when we think about the glory of God, I found this uh, on one of the websites. What is the glory of God? Well, listen to what Rick Warren has to say. It is who God is. It is the essence of his nature, the weight of his importance, the radiance of his splendor, the demonstration of his power, and the atmosphere of his presence. I really think Rick Warren really just hit the nail on the head with this definition. It is who God is, part and parcel of God. The essence of his nature, his goodness, his physical presence with his people, his compassion, his mercy, the fact that he was a saving God, the fact that he was a loving God. All of that is experienced in his nature. I love how Rick Warren used the term the weight of importance. And the reason he did that is if you look at this Hebrew word glory, which is actually used over 200 times in the New Testament, 33 times in the book of Exodus itself, this word at its very root means weight or heavy. And how it relates to glory is that it's describing the weight of his importance, as Rick Warren is saying, and the radiance of his splendor. When you think about God's glory, think about the story of Moses. Right after he experienced, he asked God, would you show me your glory? And God showed him a glimpse of his glory. We see that he came down the mountain. You might remember his face. He didn't even know it, but his face was radiant. He was reflecting back the glory of God, 
and others could see it. And I believe that happens as well today. When we experience the glory of God, we too can reflect His glory to others. When they see us, they can see God in us. God's glory, as Rick Warren says, is a demonstration of His power. Think about all of God's power throughout the Exodus event. All of those powerful plagues upon the Egyptians. Plagues of judgment upon them. The incredible miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea. Wow, what extraordinary power. How God provided for His people water and food. Water came from from rocks and a a lake would form and be able to take care of of, um, two million plus people living in a desert. Food would show up on the ground every morning like dew. Honey bread called manna. God would feed his people. God protected them from enemies in the desert like the Amalekites. God showed his power at Mount Sinai. You might remember that worship event where the thunder and the lightning and the fire was on top of the mountain and it was, uh, the, the mountain summit was, was billowing like smoke coming from a chimney and earthquakes were happening and they were hearing this loud heavenly trumpet blast and then they hear the voice of God. What extraordinary power and glory on display. And then ultimately, Rick says, it's the atmosphere of his presence. The atmosphere of his presence. Again, the glory of God is always connected to the presence of God. If God is present, you will experience his glory. Those are intimately connected. By the way, I am a big fan of Rick Warren. If you've been watching the news a little bit or keeping up with Southern Baptist Convention news, apparently our current convention leaders are not big fans of Rick Warren and Saddleback Church, but I am. So that'll be a a conversation for another time. As we read through Scripture, we see all kinds of passages throughout Scripture affirming and describing and proclaiming the glory of God. Let me just share a few. The Psalms have um, uh, literally uh, uh, over 30 passages of statements about the glory of God. Here's just a few. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. If you want to see the glory of God, just go out and kind of get a place where there's not a lot of uh, city light and look up at the stars. You can even see Venus this time of year if you look up. Uh, It's pretty amazing. The splendor of God is on display through what he has made, through the heavens. You know, I had the privilege one time of actually being in the Negev Desert. The Negev Desert is the southern desert of Israel that eventually connects to the Sinai Desert. And if you're in those desert regions, it's spectacular to see the heavens and the stars and the planets and all that you see on display. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands, as does all of creation. 
Psalm 29 too, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. What a powerful statement. I love Psalm 115 verse 1. It says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to Your name be the glory because you're of Your love and Your faithfulness. All glory needs to be channeled to God because He is the only one worthy of Worship and praise and glory. As we read through other parts of Scripture, like the prophets, we see further statements about God's glory. I love this the, the fact that Isaiah and Ezekiel both actually experienced the glory of God personally through visions. Isaiah actually sees the throne room, and he sees the angels. And he sees them proclaiming God in Isaiah 6.3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And look what else they say. The whole earth is what? Full of his glory. Ezekiel had a similar experience. In Ezekiel 1, it says, as he sees the heavenly throne room, he says, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Radiance all around. You know, as we think about God's glory, we need to understand, as some of our theologians have told us, that it's really right at the heart of who we are and what our purpose is as Christ followers. I think J.I. Packer was uh, one of the first in modern times to really emphasize this point. I love, love what he says about the glory of God. Listen to this. It says, Our high and privileged calling is to do the will of God in the power of God for the glory of God. Really, really powerful statement. Our high and privileged calling is to do the will of God in the power of God for the glory of God. It's right at the heart of our purpose. John Piper has made this concept really popular uh, today. He uh, speaks a lot about God's glory connected to our purpose. One of his quotes is this one. He says, The deepest longing of the human heart is to know and enjoy the glory of God. We were made for this. To know and enjoy the glory of God. One of my favorite Christian pastors and writers is Charles Swindoll. He talks about this aspect of glory. He says, God is able to take your life with all of the heartache, all of the pain, all of the regret, all of the missed opportunities, and use you for His glory. That's powerful. You know, for all of us, we have a God who takes our imperfections. We see a lot of imperfection in Exodus, don't we? Even Moses, this giant man of faith, this giant hero of the faith, was very imperfect had all kinds of weaknesses and things that he had to overcome, mistakes that he made, yet God used him in extraordinary ways. He will do the same for us, even use our mistakes. 
in our suffering, in our hardships, our pain, our missed opportunities, and he will turn them around if we'll let him and use them for his glory. Only God can do that. I love what Beth Moore says. She says, when we live to the glory of God, we show his goodness living through us instead of just ourselves. Again, she's just saying we get to reflect God's glory when we allow him to be Lord of our lives and live in us and through us. By the, more, I'm a, uh, by the way, I'm a big fan of Beth Moore too. And then finally, Elizabeth Elliot. She said, praise and glory to God for whom nothing is too hard. Who is Elizabeth Elliot? Some of you may remember her story. Elizabeth Elliot is actually a, a missionary in the 1950s with her husband, Jim Elliot. And she went with a team of missionaries, and they were based in a mission center in South America in the country of Ecuador, working in the jungle region of eastern Ecuador. And they were ministering to a number of tribes, Indian tribes, that lived along the Caraway River and various tributaries of the Caraway. And these Indian tribes, one of them was known the Wunani. And they began to hear about the Wunani, who were actually nicknamed by other tribes as the Aka Indians. Aka meant savage. And they were nicknamed this because the Aka Indians were known to be a very fierce, violent, and unwelcoming tribe. Well, when Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott, and the other missionaries heard about this tribe that was deep in the eastern Ecuadorian jungles, they began to do what missionaries do. They began to pray for this tribe, for these people. They began to pray that God would give them an opportunity to take the gospel to them. And the Lord began to orchestrate circumstances for that to happen. They actually met an Aka Indian who had escaped his tribe, began to, to learn their language through him and hear more about their culture. Eventually, one of the missionaries, a man named Nate Saint, an extraordinary jungle pilot, found a way to rig his airplane, and they actually discovered an Aka uh, village deep in the Ecuadorian jungle, and he found a, a river sandbar where he could actually land his airplane. Pretty amazing. And so then Jim Elliott, Elizabeth's husband, and four other missionaries, including Nate Saint, the pilot, began to, to put strategies together and go make visits to that region, flying over the village, dropping gifts, doing everything they could to establish goodwill, and eventually they landed the plane on that sandbar, built a treehouse, set up a radio communication, and actually had Aki Indians begin to visit them on the riverbank of the Caraway. And they believed they were soon going to get an invitation to go into the village where they could love these people with the love of Christ and share the gospel with them, what missionaries do. Well, the Indians did show up. 
For those of you who know the story, it was tragic. All five of the missionaries were speared to death on the banks of the Caraway River by this fierce, violent tribe known as the Akas. So the story, it seemed, ended in tragedy. But things are not always as they seem. Amazingly, Elizabeth Elliot and some of the other family members of the other missionaries renewed the efforts to connect with the Aka Indians, continued to pray that they could enter into the village and share the gospel with these people who had killed their husbands, brothers, friends. And the Lord provided a way for that very thing to happen. Two years later, Elizabeth Elliot was invited to come with another uh, Nate Saint's sister, another missionary, and go visit the, the village that had been responsible for killing her husband. She strapped her now three-year-old daughter on her back, carried her into that village, and for ten months ministered in the name of Jesus Christ. When I was a, a seminary student, I got to read her story. And in it, she shares the famous quote by her husband. He had written in his journal just a few months before he was killed. The words, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It wasn't a foolish thing to do what they did. It was a God thing. And eventually, many of these Indians came to faith in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite pictures, I actually was in, uh, in the seminary library after I had read this story, and I came across a, a big picture book with black and white photos of this story, kind of like a coffee table-sized picture book. And one of the pictures just brought tears to my eyes because it was the picture of an Aka man, a young man, probably a warrior, possibly somebody that would have been on that raid that killed Jim Elliott and the other missionaries, walking to the river, hand in hand, with Jim Elliott's three-year-old daughter. That's a picture of grace. That's a picture of the gospel. That's a picture of the glory of God. Elizabeth Elliot was exactly right when she said, Praise and glory to God, for whom nothing is too hard. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.